How do you respond when you're confronted with a seemingly impossible situation? How do you react? How do you react to adversity? The story is told of a captain of a cargo ship, and uh, as he was traveling in his travels, on occasions they would be attacked by pirate ships. And this particular captain of this cargo ship, when he was confronted at one point by a pirate ship that was ready to attack, yelled to his first mate. He yelled to his first mate, go down below and grab my red shirt. And he ran below and he grabbed his red shirt and he brought it up and he put it on the captain of this cargo ship and they began to fight this battle with these pirates. And within a short period of time, they had defeated the pirates in the pirate ship and they went on into victory. Several months went by and they were attacked again, this time by three pirate ships. Again, he yelled to his first mate, go below and bring up my red shirt. He went downstairs and brought up his red shirt and put it on the captain and they entered into this battle with these three pirate ships and after three long, lengthy hours of confrontation, this captain and his, and his crew defeated all three of these pirate ships. Now the crew was in awe of this courageous leader of theirs and as they had time to talk to him, they asked him, Captain, why do you send us below to always bring up this red shirt that you want to wear when we go into battle? And he said, well, the reason I wear the red shirt is because if I am ever wounded or if I am stabbed in a way or if I am bleeding in some way, you won't become discouraged and see that your leader has, has a, received some type of wound. And I can continue to lead you into battle. And that way you'll follow me and we will be courageous. And they were excited about this. What a great leader that they had. Well, about a year went by and the next time they're confronted by pirate ships, they're confronted by ten of them. There's ten pirate ships and they surround this one cargo ship. And as the captain surveyed the situation and he realized what was about to happen, his mate was waiting again for the command to go below and bring up the red shirt. And the captain looked around and looked around once again and yelled to him, Mate, go down below and bring up my brown pants. The point being, some of us, when confronted by or with a seemingly impossible situation or adversity, tend to respond in a less than admirable manner. <laughs> when pain invades your life, how do you respond? When things don't go your way, what is your first reaction? Listen to the words from C.S. Lewis found in his book, The Problem of Pain as he describes the role of trials in our lives. He writes this, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow, or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. It says, at first I'm overwhelmed and all my little happiness looks like broken toys. It says, then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace I succeed, and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the thread is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Wow. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Our world is shaken. God grabs our attention. He shouts from heaven that He's there and He's real and He's trying to get a hold of us. And for a moment, He catches our attention. For a moment, we slow down and we consider what's going on around us. God has grabbed the attention of our world this past week. He's grabbed the attention of the world. And for seven days we've watched and we've heard uh, endless accounts of a woman whose life was tragically taken in a car accident and those of her companions. And the world watches as death is brought to the forefront for all of the world to see at a unique time in human history where because of satellites and television and all the rest that goes on in the internet and cable and computer, everyone in the world at one time could be focused on one event. 
and God has grabbed the world's attention was this event we call death. And for just a moment, as the guy who was cutting my hair was asking me questions about this whole thing that we call death, and just for a moment, even that man's heart was grabbed as he was concerned, what does this mean? And as we began to discuss and have the conversation, it fascinates me that, you know what, you would think that more people would be interested in discussing the topic of death since it is the inevitable conclusion of all of our lives here on earth. But the moment you start to discuss death, people become very uncomfortable and they don't want to discuss death. So for seven days we've heard newsmen and, 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 uh, and reporters and commentators all discussing about what this woman's life and those around her were like, but not one of them ever addressed the fact that, hey, you know what, but where is she today? And not with any definitive answer could they help out. And so they come up with the typical, you know, the typical uh, uh, comments that you'll hear about where there must be a special place in heaven for her because of all the good things that she's done. There must be, but we don't know for sure. And so for a moment in time, God grabs all of our attention. And it won't be long before we all go back to our toys. It won't be long before we all go back to work. We forget the lesson that God's trying to teach. It won't be long before we all go back to planning and making plans and going back to going to work and making money and buying things and taking vacations and life will continue to go on as normal until God grabs our attention the next time. And as I'm thinking about all this, I'm starting to realize, you know what? No one can ever accuse God of not being patient with them. How many incidents and circumstances must take place before your eyes, before you stop and start evaluating the most important questions of this lifetime, and that is, what is this all about? Who am I? Is there a God? Did He create me? And if He did create, if He did create me, how can I get to know Him? And if I get to know Him, what does He expect of me? And if I get to know Him and I know what He expects of me, maybe I'm not going to like what He's going to ask me to do. So therefore, I'm going to try to ignore Him as best I can. And so as we look at all of these things, you know, the difficult times of, of life cause us to take serious inventory. They should. They better. They're designed to do that. And so as we look at this adversity, we find that there are hope beyond our trials. And if you've got your Bible, look at 1 Peter chapter 4 as we take a look at this whole concept of trials and what trials are all about. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes to an audience such as the audience that we find in our world today. An audience that has many questions and very few, if, if any, answers. What is it all about? What is God trying to say? Does God exist? Is there a God? What's going on here? We need to know. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we'll find hope beyond our trials as we read these words. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of, of His glory you may re rejoice with exultation. It says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. As we read through this passage, I'm reminded of another apostle who wrote to Christians who were strangers and aliens in a foreign land as well. In that book, in the book of James, if you'll turn back with me one book, you'll see in the first chapter he addresses his letter to those who are dispersed abroad. And he has some insight into this whole series of events that we'll call trials, and he gives us some insight as to the purpose and the reason for the, their occurrences. He says, James, a bondservant of God in the first chapter and the first verse, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's told that he's writing to those who are dispersed abroad. The word diaspora are two words that are used, has to do with seeds that are scattered, scattered throughout the world. And he's saying he's writing to men, who, men and women who are scattered throughout the world. And it's not by their choice that they were scattered throughout the world. And so he's trying to give them a sense of encouragement and, and, uh, and uh, exultation into the situation that they find themselves. And it's very similar of what we'll find in our own lives. We are men and women, as we've been told throughout the book of 1 Peter, who are strangers, who are aliens. This is not our world. We're citizens of another world, the Bible says. Citizens, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, of the kingdom of God that's found in heaven. And the Bible tells us that, you know what, we're strangers here. And as a result, we're living in a world that's filled with circumstances that we're going to have to deal with that are not by our choice nor by our design. We've got to deal with it. And so as he begins to encourage us in this realm, we see that there's some practical truths about trials that emerge from this particular passage. The first one is this, that trials are common occurrences. Trials are common occurrences. You know, one, the word that's used here is it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word encounter actually means when you fall into situations. You know, stuff happens, you fall into it, this is the way it is, how are you going to deal with it? The word encounter has to do with, hey, you know what, it just it happens. And don't let anybody ever tell you, nor you tell anyone else, that trials are not a part of the Christian life. Don't you ever tell a person when you're trying to explain to them that the way they come into a relationship with God is by confessing their sins, agreeing with God that they fall short of the standard that God has set, which is perfection. You know, I don't know how many people that you know, but I've never met anybody yet who said they're perfect. Their family might think they think they're perfect, but they know they're not. So I've never met anybody who's perfect. And if you ask somebody, are you perfect? They'll say, no, I'm not perfect. And I said, hey, as a result of not being perfect, God sets a standard. And his standard is that you would be perfect to enter his presence into heaven. And so therefore, because you're not perfect, you're not going to make it. And he uses his law or the commandments and other things to illustrate the truth of the matter is that we're not perfect. Hey, thou shalt not lie. Who hasn't lied? Thou shalt not steal. Who hasn't lied, cheated, or stolen? I mean, the Bible basically condemns us in the, in the laws of God and illustrates to us that we need a Savior. The law is used as a tutor by God to lead us to a Savior in Jesus Christ. God says that there are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, none of us can ever expect to go to heaven. And God intervened on the scene and said, But God so much loved this world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Wouldn't it have been a wonderful message to her to preach at a funeral, to be able to say to people who are standing and listening throughout the world, hey, you know what? Jesus Christ knows best than anyone how it is to get to heaven because he left there, came to earth, gave up his life so that if you believed in him, that you could go to heaven and be with God for all of eternity. The Bible says it's only through Christ and him alone can we find forgiveness of our sins. Can we find everlasting or eternal life? Can we find abundant life? That it's Jesus Christ and him alone that leads us to heaven. And the Bible, all of the Bible summarizes is just that that we're a fallen, sinless, sinful world that needs God's forgiveness. Wouldn't it have been a wonderful thing to take all the guesswork away from it and take all of the guesswork to say that if you do enough good stuff... Let me just burst some bubbles here. Mother Teresa did great stuff. Princess Diana did great stuff. And we hear the, compar the comparison of the two, which I think is a little ludicrous, since Mother Teresa did it for 60-some years in anonymity and never did it for any recognition. But that's beside the point, because the point is basically this. If Mother Teresa did not put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and if Princess Diana did not put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is not a place waiting for them in heaven. Jesus did it all. He paid the price once for all, period. It's by God's grace through faith that we're forgiven of our sins. It's by God's grace through faith that we're given eternal life. And the reason God did that is so that none of us would ever boast or brag about the fact that we earned our way into heaven. We need to understand and recognize that that's the simplicity of the message that God wants us to share with the world that we live in. The world is confused. The guy cutting my hair was confused. Can't you tell? But, but, hey, hey, stand up. I'll take you on one-on-one. -on -one. You stand up. Now let's compare. Stand up for a second. Would you please stand up? Now look over this way. Now bend over like this. I still got a little bit more. And mine was voluntary. All right, where are we here? 
Ah, we're rolling now. Here we go. What's the point? Yeah. No, no, we won't go there. The point is this. The point is this. That trials are common occurrences. And when we tell people that they need to believe in Jesus Christ, we need them to understand it is for the forgiveness of their sins. It is so that God will give them eternal life that God would give them abundant life, but it isn't to take away every problem that we'll have in this world. There's so much nonsense out there about how if you put your faith and trust in Christ, all your problems will go away. I don't know about you, but when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, my problems here on earth got worse. But that's okay. They're common occurrences. If you are experiencing trials as a Christian, you are the rule and not the exception. Doesn't that just bring a smile to your face? And if you just got over some, take heart, there are more coming. So there. We need to recognize it. There's more coming. But that's all right. Because the second thing as we look at is that trials come in a, in a variety or in different packages. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. They come in different packages, different sizes, different shapes, different colors, different textures. They come packaged differently. They may be physical, they may be emotional, they may be financial, they may be relational. Some of you may be dealing with trials in your family, trials in your marriage, trials with a friend. Trials with your children, trials in your workplace, trials with the boss, trials with a co-worker, trials with the, on an athletic team or an athletic field, trials in a classroom, trials in your neighborhood. They come packaged differently. They slip in sometimes unexpectedly, or you may see them coming like a tornado in the distance. But they're packaged differently. Sometimes they're as instantaneous as a car accident. And other times there is lingering as a long, lingering, suffering illness. Or a lengthy court trial. And sometimes you get a mixture and a combination of all of those things. Kind of all mixed together. Kind of like a Chinese restaurant. We get a little bit of this column and that column. And it's all mixed together. But the interesting thing is that they're common for every believer and they come packaged differently. The third thing is this. Trials put our, our faith to the test. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing what? The testing of your faith. Here's what I found. I don't know if you found this. If you found it, yell amen. But I found this to be true in my life. When trials and difficulties come before me in my life, they tend to take me back to that which I truly believe. Amen? See, and here's the difference. They'll take you back to that which you truly believe, not that which you've been telling people you believe. Big difference. There's a huge difference. Oh, yeah. There's a huge difference. I trust God. I believe that He's sovereign. I believe that He's in control. I believe they can do anything. I believe that he's not limited. I believe all these things. But you know what? A trial in my life will dictate whether I truly believe that yet or not. See, it takes us back to the roots of our belief system. To remember God's in control. To remember that I can't trust God. To remember that he's there and that he hears me. To remember that he will not leave me nor forsake me. To remember that he is a God who cares and he hears and he loves me. Yeah, see, that gives me hope beyond those trials. Boy, that's good stuff. Trials also lead to maturity. And let endurance, or knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I like that. In the physical world we live in, we can see how true that really is. You know, you can't go and run a marathon if you can't walk down the street and pick up your mail at the mailbox. Right? You just can't do it. You've got to walk first. Then you even start to jog and walk. Then you may jog and walk and walk and jog. 
Then you may even jog and walk and walk and jog and jog and walk and walk and walk. And then sometimes you just go, I'm just going to have a donut and forget the whole thing. <laughs> and then you go back to it and then you start actually to run. And then the longer that you run, the more endurance that it builds. And the longer that you have endurance, the further distance you can go. And before you know it, you can end up running 26 miles. That's the way it works. Or 22 if you quit. But now what do you say 22? Oh, 20, oh see, he, here's a marathon, a, a purist. It's 26.2 miles. So we've got to get that clarified. And, uh, and then we want to go into the history of why that it's .2, because of the guy in England that ran to wherever he ran, and he went back somewhere else. All right. Where are we going with this? The point is this. We're going to England to run a marathon. The point is, trials lead to maturity. Trials lead to maturity. And, so, and, and as much as it is a physical fact, it's a spiritual fact. Listen to me. I'm convinced of this. You cannot become spiritually mature, a mature Christian, without going through trials. It is an impossibility. Now, I know some of us just want to go straight to go, you know, and, and, uh, and just get there and say, now I'm spiritually mature Christian. The problem is that's not how God does it. And you know what? Nothing in life is like that. No pain, no gain. No pain, no glory. And so as we look at the spiritual realm, we begin to realize, okay, you know what? Trials, we can consider a joy because trials are common occurrences. Trials come in different packages. Trials test our faith and bring us back to the basics. And trials will lead us to spiritual maturity. Now, the question I ask at the beginning, I'll ask you again, and that is now, what do you do when the rug is yanked out from under you? Do you panic? Do you imitate the captain of the ship? Do you doubt God's love? Do you doubt God's strength? Do you doubt his ability? Or do you trust him to get you through those difficult times? See, what's fascinating is we can learn a lot from the life of Peter. Because here was a man who spent three years with Christ and who, as we've seen as we've gone through this study, both pleased him and failed him. Let me ask you something. Can you identify with that? Start off strong. I'm here for you, Lord. I, I recognize what you've done in my life. I got peace. I got purpose. I got contentment. I got joy. And man, I'm part of the, uh, of the family of God. And oh, man, show me where you want me to go and tell me what you want me to do because I'm ready. And it doesn't take long for you to just blow it. Three times the guy failed in succession. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking three times in a row. Three times in a row. It's like a field goal kicker being sent out on the field with the game on the line and three times in a row chunking it. Or a guy coming up to the plate with runners in scoring position and the game on the line three times in a row striking out looking. Or a guy going up to the free throw line with the front end of a one-on-one -on -one with the game on the line and three times just shooting an air ball. I don't know about you, but I've done that kind of stuff. And I can relate to Peter. And what's exciting about Peter's life is this. Despite the fact that he chunked it, God still made something special of the guy's life. But you know what? You can't write what he wrote even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God couldn't have used him if it wasn't true of his life because God demonstrates through the life of Peter what it's like to both please God and fail God. And so as we look at this passage, these words are written after a lifetime of pleasing him and failing him and being brought through trials, and he's got some unique insight that he wants to share with us. So look again at 1 Peter chapter 4 in light of everything that we've just discussed and realize that, you know what, God can use these trials in an incredible way. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. He writes, Now, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange things are happening to you. But to the degree that you suffer the suffer or share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Difficult times and trials and all these things, as I've mentioned, are designed by God to bring the attention of the world to the fact that they do not have a relationship nor a confidence nor an assurance that they know what would happen to them if they die. Those events are used by God to draw them into relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, what he's sharing with us here is not for those of us who have never put our faith and trust in Christ, 
that the circumstance and the situation is being used by God to draw you to himself. What he's about to share here is for those of us who have already come into a right relationship with God, have believed Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, believed that he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he could forgive sin and that he had power over death, put our faith and trust in him, now we read these words that say this, Beloved, God's people, Christian people, He's saying, hey, take your your name and plug it in there. If you're going through a trial, he's saying, hey, Chuck, don't be surprised by what you're going through. And so as we look at this and we're asked now, hey, how am I supposed to react when adversity comes before me? When difficult times are thrown in front of me, what does God expect of me and how does he want me to react in the midst of all of it? And you know what? It's very, very clear. Number one, he says this, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. How can anybody tell me the Bible is not relevant for our time and our culture and our age? What's the first thing that most of us do when difficult times come before us? We act surprised. Whoa! What's happening? Why is this happening to me? We're all surprised. As if somehow or another we haven't been warned that we shouldn't be surprised. Think about that. It's amazing to me. Solid bit. Why, well, you know, I'm thinking, why do people get surprised when difficult things come their way? Because they haven't been taught solid biblical truth. Think about it for a second. Why are most people surprised? Because most people are being led to believe if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, <laughs> no worries. Life's great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's the kind of nonsense that people are telling people. Hey, what we need to tell people is this. Hey, you got a major problem, and it's called sin. And if you die in that condition, you're going to hell. But don't worry about it, because Jesus Christ died for you, and if you would just trust and believe in him, God says that he'll give you life, and that he'll give you a pardon from that sin, and he'll forgive you for that. But also, I just want to let you know something. Hey, just because you give your, your life to Jesus Christ doesn't mean that everything's going to be peachy keen here on earth. You've got to remember, he's got a place reserved for you in heaven, which is wonderful, and he'll be here for you through those trials, but you're going to have difficult times. One of the best things that ever happened to us is that that was the truth that we were taught when, when my wife and I came to know Christ. It's a wonderful truth. It'll set you free. Why? Because less than a month after we both accepted Christ, our house was burglarized. We drive up in the driveway, and the drapes are blowing out, and we both look at each other like, didn't you shut the window? Yeah, well, I shut the window. Well, did you throw the screen out into the middle of the front lawn? (laughs) No. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Hey, you know what? One of the best things that we were ever taught was that, hey, listen, folks. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You have forgiveness of sin. You're a child of God. But you know what? You may be in for a rough road here on earth. And in fact... The more you want to be used by God, the rougher that road's going to be. Because you're going to be standing out in the front and you're going to be taking some shots from people and places and things that you never even thought were possible. But that's all right. See, because life is a schoolroom. I don't know about you, but I didn't get through school without taking tests. Whether it was in high school or college or graduate school or whatever, I don't know anybody that goes through school that doesn't take tests. Everybody takes tests. You have to take tests. But here's the cool thing about tests as far as God is concerned. Does God not know what you know? In the book of Job, we're told that Job was given a series of tests to go through. And it wasn't because God didn't know that Job was righteous and blameless. It was because Job had some things that he needed to learn about himself. See, God knows me. Jesus Christ knew Peter when he called him, and he still called him a rock, even though Jesus knew that Peter would fail him, even though Peter knew, Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. But Jesus also knew the end of the story, too, and that is that Peter would come through all of it stronger because of it and be a workhorse for the kingdom of God. And that's why he called him a rock. Not the rock, that's Jesus, but he called him a rock because he would stand up and be counted for the kingdom of God. So the first thing he tells us is, hey, you know what? Don't be surprised. So if you're surprised, don't be surprised. Expect it. That's good, solid biblical teaching. It's going to happen. The second thing is this. Keep on rejoicing. What? Let's look at it. 
Don't be surprised. And it goes in verse 13. It says, But the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Keep on rejoicing. Notice, too, here's what he says. Now, listen to this. In the context of history, here's what was going on in the lives of the people that he's writing this to. He says, Consider, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Okay? Now, the word fiery ordeal has an interesting historical notation that's, that's involved, and it goes one way or the other. Nero, when he was persecuting Christians, would take them and dip them in, in, uh, in some type of tar, and he would burn them, literally torch them, and use them as lights or lamps or night lights, tiki torches, out in his garden for his parties. That's the historical context of this. So Peter is saying, hey, don't even be surprised when they dip you in tar and they burn you and use you as tiki torches. Isn't that interesting? Because some of us are so surprised at the adverse reactions that we get when we take a stand for Jesus Christ in our community or in our workplace or in our school or on our team, and we're so surprised at the reaction that we get. Well, I don't know about you, but no one's ever tried to dip me in tar yet and light me up. And if he's telling those people, don't even be surprised when they do that. How much less surprised should we be because someone doesn't like me at work? Oh my. My friends don't like me at school. Oh, suck your thumb. Now, I'm not just laughing at kids because, you know what, they're learning that from their parents. Y'all just suck your thumb together. Have a whole big, old, big suck your thumb party. Feel sorry for yourself. Hey, he didn't feel sorry for himself. He said, don't even be surprised if they light you up and they torch you and they kill you. Don't be surprised by that. Jesus told his disciples, hey, don't be surprised. In three days, they're going to take me up and they're going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. Don't be surprised by that. The first reaction was, they were surprised. Our first reaction when we're told, don't be surprised, you're in for some difficult times, don't be surprised, it happens, what are we? Surprised. But, you know, we need to know that he says, just don't be surprised. And not only does he say not to be surprised, but he says this, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing? Let me give you an example. Turn back to Acts chapter 5. Maybe this will help you understand what we're dealing with here. Acts chapter 5. Look at verses 27, starting with verse 27. This will help you understand. Because these people were not nuts. Although it may appear that they were. But in Acts chapter 5, look at verse 27. It says, And when they, had, um, when they brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Hey, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name of Christ. And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter said, and the apostles answered and said, Hey, we must obey God rather than man. It says, Then the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they were intended to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. He was slain and all who followed him were dispersed and that came to nothing. And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew some people after him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. Wow. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may find that you are fighting against God himself. Boy, is that prophetic? If Jesus isn't God in human flesh, and if he is not the Christ and he is not the Messiah and he did not raise from the dead, then every one of these milquetoast guys who ran away when he was arrested would have disappeared into the sunset if it wasn't for the fact that they saw a risen Savior. 
They walked with him, they talked with him, they ate with him, they spent 40 days with him, and he taught them continually until he went back into heaven, and their lives were changed because of it, and they all died except one, a martyr's death, and no man dies for a lie. No man dies to protect a lying friend. They expose him for what he is. Jesus said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. And he demonstrated what he said was true, and that he rose from the dead. Over 500 witnesses saw it. The disciples themselves saw it. And this man, Gamaliel, teacher of the law, said this, Hey, any other cult or sect that has arisen when we killed off their leaders, the followers stopped following. And if this is of God, you cannot stop it. And 1,900 years later, we're still talking about Jesus Christ because His people and His followers are still proclaiming that He is the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. You follow what's happening here? And he says, and they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus. Then they released them. And look what happened. They beat these guys. And look what they did. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Now, when you read this, you think, what kind of guys would get beat up and then walk around and rejoice about it? These weren't super saints. They had no more power nor ability than we do. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God resides in you and He gives you the same strength and power to be able to choose joy in the midst of your trials just as they did after they were beaten for standing firm for Jesus. What does He want you to do? What kind of reaction does he expect from his people? The first one's simple. We're not to be surprised at our trials. But even more importantly, we're to keep on rejoicing that we would be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Folks, I can't get any clearer than this. An attitude of joyful gratitude opens our minds to learn from suffering lessons that we would normally or otherwise not learn. Suffering teaches a bunch if we're willing to learn. That's how he wants us to react. What does he want us to remember? We'll close on these. Number one, remember this, that trials provide an opportunity to draw upon maximum power. Go back to 1 Peter for a second. Chapter 4. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Trials provide an opportunity to draw upon maximum power. You know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian when they go through difficult times? The non-Christian has no strength, no ability, and nothing to draw from. The Christian has God Himself. It was King David who said, Though I, I, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because God, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a great comfort it is as a believer to know that in every circumstance in life, I can draw upon God's power to get me through it. The Apostle Paul said it was through his weakness that God was made strong. I remember talking to a guy who played for the Cleveland Indians whose wife and three children were tragically killed in a car accident. And as we were discussing this whole thing, I said, how did you get through it? He said, this is what I'm here to tell you. If someone would have told me before that happened that next Tuesday your wife and your children will all die tragically in a car accident, you know what I would have told them? I'd never be able to get through it. I could not even imagine it. But he's here, I'm here to tell you this, that when God says His grace is sufficient, that His power is perfected in our weakness, I'm here as living proof that what he says is true. Not that it's not tough. Not that it's not difficult. But there's a comfort and there's an assurance and there's a confidence that I know because I know they knew Jesus Christ. And I know that they're absent from the body that we buried, but they're present with the Lord. And that one day I'm going to be with them. I know that. And there's tremendous comfort in that. See, trials give us an opportunity to draw upon maximum strength that otherwise we would never be able to know existed. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
because so many of us try in our own strength and our own power to get through those difficult times. We're going to suck it up and I'm going to cinch up my belt and I'm going to get through this thing. And you know what God wants us to know? As His people, you don't have to do that. Cast your cares upon me because I want to care for you. Let me carry your burdens. Let me be the one to lead you through this thing and we'll get through it together. See, we can draw upon maximum power if we come into relationship with God. The second thing is this. Don't ever forget this, folks. Sometimes we suffer because we deserve to suffer. You see what he says? In verse 15, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Got that? Sometimes we suffer because we choose to do the wrong thing. And guess what? And even as a Christian, we can still choose to do the wrong thing. True? Amen? A little louder? Amen? All righty. See? And then we sit around thinking, hey, you know what? It's really hard to rejoice when I'm suffering for doing the wrong thing. Well, guess what? God never told you to rejoice for suffering for doing the wrong thing. What He's told you to do if you're suffering for doing the wrong thing is confess and agree with God that what you did was wrong, ask for forgiveness, repent and turn from it, and move in the right direction. That's what He wants you to do if you're suffering for doing the wrong thing. If you're in prison because you're a murderer, you can't exactly use it as a platform to tell people how wonderful it is to know Jesus Christ. You're there because you were a murderer and you did the wrong thing. And you're suffering because of that. That's the way it's supposed to be. If you're a thief or evildoer, or check this out, folks, listen to this. And if people say that God has some degree of difficulty with sin, they don't even begin to understand that all sin to God is the same and anything short of perfection is as bad as the next thing. Even though as human beings, we put degrees of difficulty on things. If you murder somebody, you're really bad. If you rape somebody, you're really bad. It used to be that a lot of other things were really bad. Now they're not that bad anymore. Uh, you know, it's that kind of sliding scale thing we're going through. But listen to this. He lists murderer, thief, evildoer with what? Troublesome meddler. Check it out. You know what that means? You're a busybody. You're a busybody. He says, you know what? If you suffer because you're a busybody, then you're suffering because you're just a little too nosy. Mind your own business. Hey, this will free you up. Okay? Sometimes we suffer because we deserve it. All right? Hey, look at all she says. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. Hey, folks, can I just encourage you? If you are suffering because you're doing what's right, don't ever be ashamed of that. Sometimes the world we live in will cause us to be confused about why we suffer. You know, I remember when I got fired for doing the right thing for my job, and I, used to, I, I would beat myself to death thinking, well, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Because if you do the right thing, good things happen to you when you do the right thing. Duh. See, I had to go through that, you know, to call upon maximum strength and uh, to learn what it meant to keep rejoicing in the midst of all of that. Why? Because I was mistakenly led to believe that if you do right, good things will always happen to you. Well, you know what? Sometimes if you do right before God, bad things are going to happen to you here on earth. You may lose your job. You, you may not get a promotion. Uh, you may not get to play on that team. Uh, you may have all kinds of things happen to you that would you put in the bad category, but God says if you suffer for those reasons, hey, consider yourself blessed. And rejoice, just like Peter, Peter and Paul did and Silas did when they walked out after being beaten. And they said, hey, hey, all right. Suffering is usually timely and needed. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Isn't that great? And it begins with us first. What will happen or the outcome be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Ooh. The Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God for those who don't know him. Can you imagine if God's people have to be taken through suffering like this to bring us to completion or maturity? Our suffering now is nothing compared to what the unrighteous will suffer later. Do we even begin to understand it? Turn to Revelation chapter 20 and we'll close on this. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 10. 
says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. Wow. With everything that we've gone on and how we deify and elevate people here on earth. The Bible says the greatest of greats and the smallest of small will all stand before the great throne judgment of Jesus Christ and give an account for their lives. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says their name will be written in the book of life and that there is no condemnation for those who are now in Jesus Christ. That there will be nothing to fear because Jesus' death took upon him the wrath of God. It says, And I saw them standing, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In verse 10, we know that they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. I can't even begin to imagine what that fate is like for those who reject Jesus Christ. But we need to understand that that's the truth of what the Bible teaches. That there are no other alternatives than to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We need to recognize if we've done that and are children of God, for those who have believed in his name, that we're going to go through difficult times here on earth. And basically, I've come to the conclusion that we have three choices to make. One is we can resist it. Two is we can resent it. Or the third is that we can rejoice in knowing that we've been found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Resistance, resentment, or rejoicing. It's our choice. Don't be surprised and keep on rejoicing. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for the clarity of your word. God, I just pray for those who continue to be stubborn in, in their understanding that somehow they think that all roads lead to heaven. Somehow they believe or been led to believe that if they're good enough, if they're nice enough, if they go to church enough, if they give up enough things, if they do enough good deeds, that somehow or another that that will earn some pleasure in your sight. But if that is true, then we're really stumped as to who Jesus is and what was it that he did and what did he accomplish with his death on the cross. Your word clearly tells us that his sacrifice is the only sacrifice pleasing to you. Us giving up anything isn't even close to what he gave up for us. It's blasphemy to believe that somehow or another that we can be pleasing in your sight. God, I just pray for those who are here or listening that have never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and realize that what he did is all that needed to be done. You tell us that his death was once for all, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I just pray for those of us who know this truth and have come into relationship with you that as we go through difficult times here on earth, not to be surprised that they're coming, but to continue to rejoice and consider ourselves worthy to suffer or be persecuted for your name's sake. God, we just thank you and we praise you that you could use our lives in some way to lead men and women to the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he did it all, that all we need to do is accept it and to thank you and to praise him for it. In Christ's name, amen.